0: And if you would, turn in your Bibles to the 29th Psalm, Psalm 29, you'll find it on page 544 of your Pew Bible. Deep down, uh, deep down, I think all people know that something is very wrong with our world. When we are young and we're idealistic, maybe we imagine that the problem is confined to certain people or bad people. Recently, a number of highly publicized speeches were made by well-meaning young people who confidently pronounced that their generation would bring an end to racism. Racism is a sin, and I was happy to hear their determination, but it was all so naive The problems with our world cannot be solved so easily. As we age, we often become bitter or resigned. The problems just never end. Just when we get a pandemic somewhat under control, we have a war. When the war ends, there follows the reprisals, the court cases, the crushing trauma, earthquakes and uprisings. As we age, The idealism of youth fades, and sadly, we are often given in and find ourselves giving in to despair and retreat. On the one hand, the Bible agrees with the aged. The problem is, indeed, much bigger than any one generation or any one political movement. It's a sad fact of history that every civilization eventually runs its course and none of them get close to ending human suffering. However, with the young and the hopeful, the Bible does call us to pray and to work. It looks with absolute confidence to a day when we will be made right, and it urges believers to humbly set up families and institutions that look like this coming hope. In short, Scripture keeps us and past generations from falling into fragile naivete or hardened cynicism. Now, here's my point this morning. The Bible avoids these two extremes because it, and it alone, has an accurate diagnosis of the problem itself. It knows the disease that is in us, and therefore it knows how it will manifest and how best to fight it. The Bible knows that the problem is not just a few cranky people. It knows that legislation alone cannot solve the problem. And yet it also knows that the disease can be treated. It can be mitigated. But sadly, it's a diagnosis most people don't want to hear. Our culture currently hates this message and this diagnosis. They would much rather blame black people or white people or liberals or conservatives or anyone or everyone, anything other than hearing God's diagnosis. They're open to any answer except this one. And sadly, many in the church follow the culture. In the words of Jeremiah's church-going generation, tell us sweet things, Jeremiah. Tell us gentle things. Here is what they are hiding from. God says our problem is mainly doxological. We have a worship problem. We are doxological beings, beings made for worship, and we are living in a doxological universe, a universe designed to glorify God, and we and we alone refuse to sing along. We worship the wrong things, and that is the root of all the carnage. Psalm 29 was written into a society that worships all the wrong things. They worshiped the idol called Baal, the god of the storm. Psalm 29, our text this morning, is David's response his storm doxology. With it, he calls all people who on earth do dwell and all the heavenly host to worship the true God, the true God revealed in the storm. Ironically, as we'll see, only in hearing the violent storm and aligning with its message will we know peace, shalom, which is, as it turns out, the last word, of the psalm. Please stand if you would, and let's read this wonderful storm doxology. I'll be reading the whole of the psalm, Psalm 29. A psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the the Lord the glory. Do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf, and Syrian like a young wild ox, The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on us. Father, we pray that in this place, this temple, where we have come this morning to worship you, all would cry out from their soul, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth for men with whom he is well pleased. Give to us a song of praise and bless us with your shalom. Guide us now through this song and work upon us through your Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, or possibly in your own personal Bible that you've brought with you, uh, you might notice that the editors have broken Psalm 29 into three sections or paragraphs. In verses 1 through 2, David gives a call to worship. In words that sound a lot like our doxology this morning, David urges the heavenly host to praise God. Then, in the big middle of the psalm, Psalm three through nine, uh, verses 3 through 9, David gives reasons for this praise. He explores the power and volume of a violent storm as it takes shape in the Mediterranean and then comes crashing over the land of Israel. And then lastly, in verses 10 and 11, David offers a benediction, a benediction of peace and security for God's people. Despite their trials, despite their storms, God is enthroned over the storm and in the storm, and ironically, it is the God of the storm who also in the final verse gives peace. One helpful way to think about this psalm is that it is a kind of liturgy within a liturgy. To put it more simply, it's a kind of mini church service You have a brief but important call to worship, followed by a sermon about the Lord's voice in the storm. And then the service ends with God's people singing a final word of praise and asking for God's blessing in response to what they have just heard. Consider with me then this familiar pattern, one I'm sure you're used to from our own services. It begins, as does our own service, with a call to worship or what we might call a formal doxology. When we just sang our doxology a moment ago, we sang, remember, praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. It may never have occurred to you that you are inviting angels to sing along, but we are doing that each week. And that's what David does here. In fact, looking through church documents this week, I can say that this psalm, this very psalm, is part of why the Christian church historically has invited angels to join the chorus. So David writes in verses 1 through 2, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord, the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Like us, just like us, the angels were created to be in love with something outside of themselves. They are not themselves. They are not whole unless they love something else and give themselves to it. They are meant for praise. They are designed for worship. Since we were made in the same way, It makes sense that we would invite them to join us. We too, like them, are lost without love and worship. We must worship something. We must give ourselves to someone. In that worship, David then calls on the angels to augment and strengthen his worship to do their part But this can also work the other way around, can't it? Just as we invite the angels to sing along, so the angels can teach and invite us. The Bible repeatedly describes angelic worship for us very clearly, and the aim is always to get us going. Think of the angels with the shepherds in Bethlehem. They lead us to sing, angels we have heard on high. Or think of one of our greatest hymns, Holy, Holy, Holy. That hymn is based on angelic worship. It comes from Isaiah's ordination when he's caught up into heaven in chapter 6 and he hears the angels crying to each other, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. All All worship is, in some sense at least, Contagious. What you love, you want others to love. What you sing, you want others to sing. And so, in ways we probably have not even yet imagined, worship moves between us, between heaven and earth, between the congregation here and angels there. Also, notice that with this invitation, this call to worship, David gives some directions. Now, as a fallen man, he doesn't presume to tell the angels how exactly to do their job, but he does have a theme in mind, doesn't he? In verses 1 through 2, he calls on the angels to give or ascribe glory to God. That's his concern. That is the theme he wants for this concert. Glory literally means something that is heavy, rather than light, something that is honorable rather than common. It often also has a reputation element to it. In other words, give God the glory, the reputation, the praise he deserves for what he has done. The last verse of the call to worship, verse 2, also gives directions on the way this glory is to be done. There is a kind of dress code, we might say, for this concert that David has in mind. The concert he is putting together must be done, he says, in the splendor of holiness. The splendor of holiness. The book of Revelation gives us the most complete look we have in scripture of what heavenly worship really is. It ends up being virtually identical with what Isaiah, Ezekiel, and others saw and wrote. What we hear in each and every case can be summed up this way, glory to God in holiness. Here David captures that model and asks that God's glory be the theme, that God's glory be the theme, and that holiness be the dress code. In fact, quite literally, verse 2 can be translated in Hebrew, Worship the Lord in holy attire. It's very close in Hebrew, actually, to the words that are used by Moses for Aaron's priestly vestments. The worship is to center around, it is to dwell on the single theme and focus of God's glory, and the whole emphasis on glory is to be wrapped in an overwhelming sense Of God's holiness. When he first came to Christ, C.S. Lewis had a problem with Psalms like this one and with the constant command to give God the glory. In his famous little book on the Psalms, Lewis admits that he used to cringe at sections like this one because he imagined God to be like so many vain people who desperately needed praise. However, he came to realize that the call for praise was not based out of God's need, but out of our own need. He confessed, quote, I did not see that it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. Ultimately, he found it is God who gives, and we who receive, end quote. He also came to see that praise was natural, actually that it was unavoidable. To be alive is to worship. So whenever we begin, we even just begin to understand who God is, we must spontaneously break into praise. It isn't something God is trying to squeeze out of us for himself, to fill some need or hole in his heart. Rather, To ascribe glory is simply, in Lewis's words, quote, to be awake. Lewis writes, he, God, is that person, that person to admire, which is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world. In a recent obituary, Raquel Welsh's pastor described how the Westminster Standards had become important to Raquel in her later years. I don't know which part he had in mind, but whenever I hear that, my mind always goes back to that first question of our catechism. What is man's chief end? And we might add, what is the chief end of the angels? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And in that same chapter of Lewis's book on the Psalms, it is the first question, that question of the shorter catechism, or to use Lewis's words, that question of from the old Scotch catechism that helped him think clearly. May it do that for us again today. We, like the angels, are not meant to serve our own agenda, but to live unreservedly for the glory of God in holiness. In worship, in the acts of worship, We sometimes feel just how petty our own kingdoms of self really are. And in such moments, we are, in the words of Lewis, finally really awake. Indeed, to worship God is to be awake. It is to begin to see what things really are, not just how they work or what they're made up of. That is a concern for science, and it is a very useful and important question but to worship is to begin to understand what these things mean. Not just to know how your body works, but what it is for, and more importantly, what it represents. And that leads us, you see, secondly, to the sermon of the Psalms, the big middle, verses three through nine. In these verses, a powerful storm fills David's vision. Not so much the science of it, but how the storm reveals God. David is acutely aware, as I hope you are, that this entire world is God's theater. As creator, every part of our world is revelation. Even when we are cursing God, we are using a mouth he designed. He is the artist. And every song is ultimately his song. And so David sees God, not just by green pastures and still waters, but he sees him also in the raging storms. The storm begins over many waters in verse 3. He writes, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The picture is of a storm coming in from the Mediterranean Sea. He would have seen this happen many times and heard about it often. The storm takes shape out in the raging waves, and you hear the booming thunder from a distance. The storm draws ever closer, and then it makes landfall on Lebanon. Verse 5 says it breaks the cedars of Lebanon. In verse 6, it makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The cedars of Lebanon were huge, magnificent trees, of which there are too few left today. Syrian is a reference here to Mount Hermon, the largest mountain in the area. The image is that the storm is so powerful, so destructive, that it's tearing even the most powerful trees apart and shaking even the largest mountain. It is a mixture of storm and earthquake. We follow the storm through the psalm then as it comes down from Lebanon over Israel. Now it's shooting fire and lightning in verse 7. And it ends with a boom in the wilderness, in verse 8, in the wilderness of Kadesh, the southern border of Israel. It moves then from the northern border to the southern border, covering Israel in storm. Today, uh, we know more about storms than ever before. We know about them, but we don't know what they mean. In a world where God is the creator, everything means everything. All artists know this to be true. Yes, the storm is a combination of various forces. There's wonderful science there. But more importantly, more fundamentally, the storm is a revelation. It is a symbol in a symbolic world. And so notice throughout the sermon, what David has found in the storm not just a meaningless bit of messy weather, not simply a combination of pressure fronts. Those are the superficial observations a modern person would find in the storm. But he has looked more deeply, and in our symbolic world, our creational world, he hears within the storm the voice of God. Voice, verse 3, The voice is, you'll notice, over the water. Verse 5, it is the voice that is breaking the cedars of Lebanon, and so on and so on. David has learned to look on his word and on his world theologically. Again, this is not to take away for one moment the goodness of science, to ask how things work is important. David, I'm sure, did that as well. But he also knows how to look deeply, to ask and to see what it means to be awake in God's world, to be awake in God's theater. In the storm, he sees and he hears the voice of God. And he got this, of course, as he got all his material from his Torah, his Bible. David has read all his life the account of Genesis 1. He knows that it is the spoken word of God that first called our world into existence. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He also knows the story of the flood. In verse 10, notice that he brings it up. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The word used there is only ever used in the Bible to refer to Noah's flood it's quite possible that the storm he describes in this sermon is the storm of the flood. The message in Genesis is clear. As God's voice brought order into creation, out of the dark waters of chaos, God brought forth the creation by his voice. So his voice at the flood brought judgment and destruction. A new world was born at his word. It doesn't stop there, though. On Mount Sinai, during the Exodus, it was a storm that hid the presence of God on the mountain with thunder and lightning. In fact, throughout the Bible, God appears to his people and speaks to his people out of clouds and darkness, maybe nowhere more powerfully than at Jesus' transfiguration, where we read that, quote, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then John, caught up into heaven, describes heaven's throne this way. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. On some important occasions, God is in the storm itself his special presence, and he speaks audibly at Sinai and at the Transfiguration. But even if it's just a regular storm, the voice of the Lord is still evident. To actually be out in a great storm is to remember that the word of God that made our world will one day unmake it. When the hurricane last hit New Jersey, we prayed as a state But then, showing our lack of true faith, we foolishly put up banners that read, quote, stronger than the storm, end quote. But every disease, every storm, every earthquake reminds us just how vulnerable we really are. For a world that has been made can always be unmade. And so the author of Hebrews says, This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Knowing all this, can you appreciate what it meant when Jesus, with a word, calmed the storm? The voice of the Lord Can you begin to imagine what it meant to the apostles, to Jewish men in love with Torah who knew these stories by heart? What it meant to them that when with his voice, with his voice, the Lord hushed the storm. And then on the cross, he silenced the loud thunder of Sinai forever. He fulfilled the law for you and me so that on the day of shaking, a day of shaking and storm that is coming, the day God is warning us about every time there is a storm, we might, by his grace, be unshaken. This too, this too was always about Christ. It was Christ who was the word of God spoken at creation. It is Christ who sits enthroned on the flood, This is what it meant when they saw him walking on the water and quieting the storm with a word. Suddenly into the world, into God's theater, walks an actor for whom the whole play was designed and to whom the whole environment responds. So therefore, let every valley be raised and every mountain brought low. Welcome the word of the Lord, not in the storm, but in the gentleness of the gospel. A bruised reed he will not break. No, he will not snuff out even the sputtering candle. This irony, this magnificent irony, that the storm rider is not Baal, and not even a god of anger and law, but the gentle and lowly Savior, the word of God, the voice of God in our midst, that wonderful irony leads us lastly to our benediction. In verse 11, David writes, May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with shalom or peace. Benediction, you probably know, means blessing, and that's how David ends, just as we end our services. May the Lord bless his people with shalom. Once again here, see that David knows his Bible. All of this comes from Torah. He's not making this up. He's a man of the word, just as we seek to be today. And he knew from the word of God the great blessing of the Old Testament. Quote, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you shalom. How many times, how many times had David heard those words had he received that blessing from the hands of the priests. Now, as the storm has passed from his vision, he leaves God's people with the blessing of shalom. It's an amazing ending to this stormy psalm. So yes, the storm is a reminder of God's judgment, that what he has been put together can and will come apart once again, just as at the time of the flood The Apostle Peter reminds us that our world, our current world, is waiting, no surprise, Peter says, for a word, a word from the Lord to come apart. But for the believer, if you're a Christian, the storm and the voice in the storm can only ever whisper peace. The angels have said it best, as David knew they would. Therefore, glory to God in the highest and on earth, even in the storm, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And a little closer to home, Philadelphia preacher Charles Albert Tinley wrote, Courage, my soul, and let us journey on. Though the night is dark, it won't be very long. Thanks be to God, the morning light appears. Billows rolling high and thunder shakes the ground. Lightnings flash and tempest all around. Jesus walks the sea and calms the angry waves and the storm is passing over. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The storm is passing over. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for our Savior, who, with one word, has forever calmed the storm of your wrath and now has left to us the sweet whisper of peace. For each one here who knows you, give them that assurance this morning that whatever life may throw at them, whatever trials and tribulations may come this week and in the years to come, the storm can bring nothing with it, but peace and blessing, for it is the voice of God. It is the Savior who is in the storm. Strengthen your people with this hope. And if there be any here today who do not know you, help them to see the storm coming, to know the anger and rage of a holy God against sin, and help them run to Christ, for he is able to calm their storm and to walk upon their waters. These things, Father, we ask and pray for Jesus' sake and for his glory and for the glory of his name.